Hello there, good morning, and welcome to Investor Insights from Genesis. It's Mike Williams here. Hope you're having a great day, and uh, thank you again for spending some time with us. Uh, so what's today about? Today is about what we call tough lessons. Uh, you know, the markets, strangely enough, test us repeatedly if we get caught up in the, the headlines and the emotional aspects that so often throw investors off over the years. You know, we've been doing this for 30 years, and what we want to try to do in these podcasts is sort of uh, share ideas and thoughts and lessons and experiences so that maybe in the process uh, it will help you alleviate some of those elements within your wealth building plan. We certainly hope so. So what are some of the tough lessons? Well, uh, first of all, you know, as we all learned when we were kids, uh, you know, you never do the same thing expecting different results. Uh, we learned it years ago. But strangely enough, the crowd continues to do the very same things over and over and over. Uh, one of the things we like to do is we're, we're very sensitive to the noise and the headlines. You know, these days, uh, the media business model changed. We, we think it changed right around the late 80s, early 90s, when the internet began to uh, become known. You know, the first blog popped out, uh, news was on the uh, internet instead of just on your television. Um, you know, mobile obviously exploded that. The point is, is that now we get data from everywhere and, and we think as investors or many think as investors that since we now know something, it must be important and it must be so important that we uh, should do something. Um, you know, we learned long ago that doing less makes you more. Uh, it's tough sometimes. It requires patience. And in a push-button world, uh, many people have lost the aspect of patience even in their daily lives, much less in their investment planning for the next, God knows, you know, 30 years. So what we try to do is be sensitive to the headline data because as a story gains more and more noise, if you will, more following. As you hear it in more places, it becomes not a surprise anymore. So so as a market moving event, the, the higher the pitch in the headline process, the more likely you should be looking somewhere else for what is ever going to happen in the market. You know, surprises are called surprises for a reason. You know, it certainly can't be a surprise if you're hearing about it everywhere in the headlines. Uh, you know, we think of the last six, eight, 10, 12, you know, months, two years, three years. Think of all the things we so readily know now. We, we know Greece is in trouble. Do we actually believe that Greece is going to destroy the world? I mean, if there's anyone who has invested in Greece that has not either accepted the risk <laughs> or hedged away their risk, well, then they should lose their money. Uh, in other words, elephants don't bite you on the ass. The big thing that everybody is focused on is highly unlikely to cause a market event that is anything other than short-term. It is the things out of left field uh, that no one is covering that completely surprise us that will will disable markets for a short period of time. But the point is, is that um, 
if they are surprises, and they are indeed <laughs> surprises, if they are, then why do you worry about them? Uh, why do so many investors worry and fret over something that may never happen? And if it does, it will be a surprise. So it's not like we can worry ourselves into success. We can't uh, guess what's going to happen because indeed if we happen to guess it's just a guess it's not a <laughs> it's not a business plan it's not an investment model it's not something we can program into a computer and do it for us it's a guess that's why it's called that it's oddity that will that will unlikely happen often so so here's the thing the dark little secret the tough little lesson those who successfully build wealth, those investors who create the wealth that will permit them to meet their financial goals, uh, do so by one scary idea, and that is that we must travel the entire pathway. Risk cannot be escaped from. We cannot leave risk on the side of the road and then still invest for a gain. Uh, we must understand that risk is indeed part of every single thing we invest in, every single thing. So if you're being told otherwise, then something else uh, is not being expressed properly to you. So I would readily try to point out the other tough lesson, and that is no matter what we do, if we invest for the potential of gain, we are indeed taking a risk. Now. Once we accept that, we can desensitize the word risk because it's just an accepted part of the process. We can manage risk. We can't escape risk, okay? Even if that means never buying a stock and putting your money under the mattress, you are still taking risk. And you might say, well, well how could that be a risk, Mike? Well, your house could get robbed. You know, you're, you could be stuck at gunpoint in the middle of the night from someone who knows the money is under your mattress, and they could say, I'm going to kill you if you don't give me your money. So there is risk, like it or not, may be perceived differently by others, but there's a risk. Now, here's the thing. The danger is when you don't accept that risk is part of the deal, you get emotional. You know, our minds do crazy things when risk attacks us as though we didn't know it was there. Um, that's what we call poor investor behavior. In fact, there's been a, a label put on this. It's called the investor behavior penalty. Uh, Dalbar did a huge survey, and they do this on a rolling 20-year basis. And what they, what they do is they compare the results the market has delivered, and then they create the result of open mutual fund investor accounts. And that's all public data. And if you can connect all the dots, here's what you'll find repeatedly. Okay, I'm going to give you a percentage. And the percentage is this, 28 to 30 percent. Now, what is the question? The question is, how much of what the market delivers does the average investor actually get? In other words, somewhere between 28 and 30% of what the market delivers 
is what the average investor receives. I'll give you some specific examples from 1989 to 2008. 7.3% is what the average market return was in U.S. equities in the United States of America. Yes, that included two horrible downturns. Yes, that included the tech bubble and the real estate bubble. And the average over that 20-year period was 7.3%. In other words, if you stood there and did nothing but stay on your path, stay invested, ride those roller coasters up and down, you would have received 7.3%. Now, here's the deal. The average investor in mutual funds received 1.87%. Now, you can understand why the public thinks the market's going nowhere. But see, the market's gone a long distance. I started in 1982. Long-time listeners will know that. When I started, the Dow was at 970. Now it's over 18,000. So one has to wonder, why in the world would anybody think we've not gone anywhere? We've not gone anywhere because of the investor behavior penalty. People will make a stark, raving, mad error. They will sell what isn't working and buy what is working. Um, I, 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 would, I would bring back a comment from Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's partner. We included a piece on our last podcast. He made a very compelling remark uh, in the past weekend at their, uh, their capitalism Woodstock in Omaha, and that is this. If people weren't often so wrong, we would not be so rich. You see... The business of the smart investor is to begin to understand that it is the very mistakes of the crowd that create the profit profile we must take advantage of. In other words, that investor behavior penalty over those 20-year periods is over 5.5%. Somebody is picking up that 5.5%. Remember, if someone makes a mistake, the other guy gets the benefit of it. So what we have to do is begin to understand that what the crowd is doing repeatedly over and over and over and over repeatedly costs them money. Repeatedly costs them money. The idea of selling what isn't working, meaning it's already gone down, and buying what is working, meaning it's already gone up, puts you behind the eight ball twice. <laughs> it's, you, you have to work very hard just to get back to zero. Okay? And believe me, after the last 50 years, we have had numerous times when things didn't look like they were working. The past 30 years that I've been in the industry, there were many times when things looked like they weren't working. But yet, the Dow went from 970 to 18,000. So something was working. Our economy went from 5.5 trillion in 1982 to over 18 trillion today. That's a lot of new business. In 2003, at the end of the tech bubble, when the masses were terrified of stocks, and by the way, that was thousands of points ago in the market, there was roughly, let me get this data, there was roughly $1.9 trillion in bank accounts. That was a record amount of money at the time. Now, after the collapse in 08 and 09, can you guess what today's readings are 
according to the St. Louis Fed and the research they put out, does anyone want to guess how much money is sitting in bank accounts earning nothing in the United States of America? This is just regular old consumer bank accounts. Forget corporate stuff. Forget publicly traded companies. Forget corporate balance sheets. This is personal, individual bank accounts. The number? $7.9 trillion. Let's round that off just for purposes of this podcast. $8 trillion is sitting in bank accounts. So think about that for a second. $8 trillion. Okay? So what does that tell you? It tells you that massive amounts of people continue to do the wrong thing. We believe we're in a secular bull market. Secular bull markets last for years, and they are designed instinctively to scare you even more so than bear markets because people get sort of flummoxed into the idea that, oh my gosh, things are terrible out there and yet the market is going up. I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to be that crazy. I already lost money once before doing that. And then it just keeps going up and it keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It did that from 1982 to 2000. It took the masses about 14 years of watching the market go up to finally get involved in the mutual fund arena. We know because we can see record amounts of money flowing in during those late years of the very long bull market. I suspect the same thing will happen again. It'll take a lot of time and we'll go through a a lot of struggles. But the stage is set for yet another extended period of time that will fool the crowd. Imagine how fooled they have been en masse since 2009. The Dow is up over 10,000 Dow points. And yet the most asked question I get today, no matter where I go, is this. Mike, when is the market going to crash again? That tells you they're still terrified. I've argued since about 2010 that the 0809 collapse will be our generation's Great Depression. Mentally, it will last longer than it ever would have lasted financially. And it's costing people small fortunes and massive numbers of goals in their wealth management plan because they have piled into bonds. They're terrified of stocks. They're certain the market is going to crash again. And they have nearly $8 trillion dollars. Eight trillion reasons to explain to you that they're terrified, sitting in bank accounts earning nothing. Those are tough lessons indeed. But here's the thing. A piece done by Wells Fargo shows that Wall Street is even terrified still. In fact, the bullishness for stocks, the current sell-side consensus indicator, which is all the guys at big Wall Street firms that tell their clients how much they should have exposed to the market, it's turned into a percent. And today, today, as we speak, that percent of exposure is less than it was at the bottom of the stock market in 2009. Now, it's only one and a half percent less, but it is still less, meaning they are more afraid of risk than they were. 10,000 points ago. Now here's the scary, even scarier part. 
the percentage of risk that average Wall Street firms think we should be taking is nearly identical to what it was in 1984, 1985, 1986, and 1987. It is 2% higher than where we were in 1988 and 1989. It is nearly identical to where we were in 1990, the early 90s. You remember there was a recession because we had a commercial real estate collapse. But the Dow was in the 3,000 range. It's six times higher today. And yet, as a percentage, Wall Street feels about the same. So listen, crowd mentality is a dead end. And if we can begin to understand how to dissect the errors of the crowd and simply not make as many of the same errors, we're going to be far ahead from the crowd at the end of our game. Remember, this is not about being perfect. There's no such thing as perfect. It's about being a little bit better than the rest. Think of baseball again. Remember, the guy who bats 350 is usually the highest paid guy on the field for that particular team. The guy who bats 200, well, he probably makes half of what the other guy does, but here's the deal. He only hits one more pitch out of 10. Think about that. This is not about perfection. No one ever gets there. This is about turning the dial a little bit to your favor, just a little bit. One or two more hits out of 10. So take the pressure off. Take the fears away. Understand risk is part of everything and then manage the risk. But don't run from it. If you run from it, you'll get zero. Look, we hope this has been helpful. Listen to it again if you can. Drive careful. Have a great day. Join us again on the next episode. Thanks so much and have a wonderful week.